winter's mud Thank you. And that is God's word to us. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands and endures forever. It is authoritative and inspired by God, and it's good for us this morning. I'm going to pray for us as we get into this passage. Let's pray. God, thank you that you're with us. You speak to us that, uh, that you are uh, revealing yourself. Uh, you have revealed yourself finally and ultimately in, the, in your word, but Lord Jesus, you are revealing yourself over and over to us uh, every time we come together on Sunday morning. And so we pray that you would do that, that we would uh, know you more because uh, you have made yourself known to our hearts and to our minds, that our lives would be different because we've encountered you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome. If I don't know you, my name's Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, uh, and we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, you see two of us up here, uh, and, uh, and normally just one person preaches the sermon, but this morning, Justin Collins is going to co-preach this passage with me, uh, and you're going to see why both of us are preaching this text, and prayerfully uh, that you'll hear one uh, true God's voice through two different men. And in order to make us one family united around the Lord Jesus. Psalm 137 that was just sung, it's an outrageous song. If you picked up on the word, the words and the wording. Uh, it's been referred to many as the scandal of the Psalter. Uh, it has been tried by many to theologians and scholars to remove it from the Bible. Especially those last few verses. Let's take those verses out of the Bible. 
But God's word to us this morning, I deeply believe, is authoritative and inspired by him. Now, I, I love the Bible. I really do. I love that the Bible uh, and what God gives to us uh, is, is not a life, uh, does not depict a life filled with roses, a life in some fairy tale land, but uh, in a life filled with smiley, happy people all the time. The Bible is very real, and it's very raw, and it's very honest. And therefore, God does not sugarcoat our world. He doesn't sugarcoat our lives. And, and this is good because every one of us here this morning knows that the reality is that life isn't always rosy. It's not always a fairy tale land. And we always don't feel like smiley, happy people, do we? Just look at the history of our, of our world. You've got the African slave trade, Native American displacement. Nazi concentration camps, the, the great Chinese famine from 1940 to the 50s that killed 45 million people, the hundreds of wars counting for millions of lost lives. From 1970 to 2012, 51 million unborn babies were murdered. Look at the recent events in the past year. Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting the numerous unarmed black men who've been killed, the Dallas and Baton Rouge police officers killed, the numerous ISIS killings. Currently in our world, there are 50 million slaves. Let's bring it to Durham. The increasing number of homicides, the increasing displacement of low-income families, the increasing number of families that don't have a mother or a father or neither, the lack of affordable housing and equitable education. The weekly reports in the Herald Sun and the Durham News, theft, abuse, and rape. 50 million slaves in our world. Let's bring it again to Durham, as I was just saying. Durham News, the Herald Sun reports weekly, if you, if you read any of those, of, of theft, abuse, and rape that's happening in our city. Personally, in our own lives, all of you have been hurt from words or actions or lack of actions You've been betrayed, you've experienced loss, you are wrestling with addictions. And I can wrap up all of what I just said with the history of our world, the past year's events, the realities of Durham, and our personal lives with one word. One word. Evil. Evil. Evil is what is morally wrong, sinful, or wicked in our world. David writes in Psalm 51 that evil is anything that contradicts the holy nature of God. Evil is anything that takes the good created world and the good humanity that God created and diminishes it. J.P. Moreland notes that evil is a lack of goodness. It's goodness spoiled. Evil is real. And when we experience it, a response of outrage and anger and a fighting against wells up. And this is the impetus for war. Someone's oppressed, and the response is outrage and anger. There's a call to rise up against the oppression. This is what's fueled, what, what, what fueled the abolition of slavery and the civil rights movement, and I believe what is part of the Black Lives Matter movement, that, that these are all wars in their own right on what is viewed as evil. God is the primary subject throughout the Psalms, all 150. But hear me, second place clearly goes to the enemies of God and the enemies of, God, the enemies of God's people. And Psalm 137 is one of these places. It is a wartime prayer.
prayer. It is a prayer of rising up against oppression and evil. It's a prayer of outrage and anger and a cry for justice. This psalm is not simply addressing us this morning. Like many other psalms, one of its roles is to touch and to kindle and to tap into our hearts and emotion and our humanity. Psalm 137 is a raw, wounded cry that forbids we smooth give smooth answers and smooth over the realities of cruelty and evil in our world. Now, maybe you're here and you're like, man, this sure doesn't sound like love. I thought Christianity is about love. Doesn't this oppose love and oppose Jesus who who says, turn the other cheek? Hopefully this morning you'll see that Jesus and the gospel of Christianity is the requirement of love and at the same time a call to hate evil. Let's dive into Psalm 137. It's a psalm that is written, I believe, while the Israelites were in Babylonian exile. We have to understand the context. The Babylonians had displaced and dispossessed the Israelites from their home in Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, some of the Israelites actually found life in Babylon to be okay. It was was actually okay. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 29 where some of the Israelites actually bought homes and planted gardens and, and raised their children. But in spite of all of this, there was for the Israelites a taking of their home, a displacement of home. They lost nearly everything when they lost Jerusalem. They experienced evil. And this is a wartime prayer of the Babylonian oppression called the Babylonian exile. So I'm going to preach for the next few minutes on verses 1 to 3. And Justin is going to preach on verses 4 to 9. And then we're going to land this plane together. And this is my prayer, that we will be two men who speak from and about our experience of evil, in particular, the realities of racism, individually and systemically, and that God might use this to form us, Christ Central, into a united family of peace rooted in a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who gives all of us hope this morning. First thing we see about wartime prayer in the face of evil is the presence of tears. Look at verses 1 to 2. By the water of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. When we remembered Zion on the willows, there we hung up our lyres. The psalmist writes, by the water of Babylon, next to a river, he sits down and he weeps when he remembers Zion. Zion was his home place of security and identity, and now displaced, he weeps, remembering home. Weeps because this is not the way it's supposed to be. They're to be in Zion. I think it's necessary for us as Christians to mourn and to lament and to weep when things are not the way they're supposed to be. When the good of God's created world and His humanity is diminished, I think it's part of being human to weep when evil has been inflicted on you or when you've seen evil inflicted upon another person. The best definition for sadness that I've ever heard is sadness is honoring loss. It's honoring loss. Sadness and tears give honor to something that's been taken away. We've had a lot taken away in this world. When sin entered into a perfect, good, created world. Genesis chapter 3, God bro- uh, it broke God's world. And sin displaced God's people from His presence, 
It disrupted community between one another. It dispossessed, dispossessed people from the creation. Everyone here this morning has experienced great loss. And now any time that we see people apart from God, or apart from one another, or apart from creation, or in other words, when good is diminished and evil acted out, it should cause us to be sad and to honor loss and to weep. But to shed tears, we have to be able to see the evil, right? And so let me share a little bit of my story in regards to race and to racism. I grew up in Columbus, Georgia. My dad was stationed in the military at Fort Benning. All my family, both my father's side and my mother's side, from Valley, Alabama, small town, Alabama. Needless to say, it was the Deep South. And I heard numerous derogatory words about people of color. Not only in this southern culture that I grew up in did I experience microaggressions, like little aggressions toward people uh, of other races, I experienced macroaggressions, large scale. I went to a private Catholic school. I played sports growing up. I was raised in a, a very politically conservative family. I had friends and classmates who were of a different race than me, but most of my life was lived segregated and surrounded by whiteness. Then I go to college, and again, I have friends that are from other ethnicities, and, uh, but then I start traveling abroad, summer of 1997, to, to China, and I fell in love with Asia. I lived there for two years and I've been back six times since. And so I started to get a heart for understanding other cultures. But it wasn't really until 2008 that my eyes began to be open to the realities of race and ethnicity and class here in America. How could I live 30 years never seeing, never facing the deep and broad realities of racism and systemic racism? because I was a white man living in a majority white culture, which afforded me the privilege to remain blind to what life for people of other cultures and races are like. So in 2008, I embarked to learn and to listen and to see what life in America was like in particular for my African-American brothers and sisters. And so I traveled to the south side of Chicago with some UNC students. They were in a ministry I was leading there uh, for a number of years. And the first thing we did when we got to Chicago was ride the L from the farthest point south to the farthest point north in the city of Chicago. Just, and we were told, just observe, watch, watch, just look, open your eyes. And I was blown away by how the demographic of that train shifted from going south to north, from dark skinned to medium, to mixed, to all white by the time we got to the north of Chicago, which was also a shift from lower class to upper class. And from that day until this day, I've been reading and listening and asking questions and trying to sit at the feet and be friends and listen to brothers and sisters tell me what it's like to be in the minority. I don't know what it's like to experience oppression because of the color of my skin. I just don't. <laughs> but as a Christian who is called to weep over and lament over evil, I cannot and you cannot remain blind to the goodness of brothers and sisters of other ethnicities being diminished, be it in a little remark or in conversations or in broad systemic realities. We just cannot remain blind. 
So for all of us here this morning, first thing, do you cry? Do you shed tears over the evil in the life you've experienced? Because we've all experienced. Do you honor loss with tears? And secondly, for my white brothers and sisters, do you cry over the evil in the lives of others? Specifically those who've been oppressed because of race or class. Tears. Tears are the beginning of the rising up in wartime prayer. Now look at verse 3. Which has been so convicting, deeply convicting to me as I've studied this passage, and it's produced sadness for me, and I hope actually it produces sadness for some of you this morning. Look at verse 3. For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. The Babylonians displaced and dispossessed the Israelites, but then required them to sing their songs of Zion as a form of entertainment. You can almost envision the Babylonians kind of mocking the Israelites. Sing us a song. Sing us one of the songs of of Zion. Entertain us. Those who were oppressing wanted to take from the culture that was being oppressed and be entertained by them. That should sound a little familiar. Because for the majority culture, that has been what has been happening in our country for a long time. Specifically in regards to the African American community. Those who oppress, either by force and volition or by blindness and omission, can take from the culture that's being oppressed and seek to be entertained by them. Those oppressing can say, give me song, give me mirth. Think about it. The 1920s in our country, the Harlem Renaissance. Rich white people would go to nightclubs to be entertained by Duke Ellington and Josephine Baker. Even here in Durham, North Carolina, famous jazz musicians would play in places like the Durham Armory. There are pictures of rich white patrons who would buy tickets to sit in the balcony to be entertained by famous black musicians. The culture of the African-American community was forged out of suffering and held the community together, and yet white people can take parts of the culture, like music and food, and be entertained by it. And we can even call it a love for the black community. (laughs) And it's mirth. Now, I hope I'm stepping on some of your toes because this has been convicting to me as I've studied this passage because I know it's true at points in my own life. And I've been asking this question as a white pastor who's trying to build a multi-ethnic church. Are we really building a community of love across race and class or do we just have some diversity But the majority dominant culture just likes to be entertained with songs and mirth of the other culture. Do you who are minorities in our community really feel loved and valued or just used? Lord knows I pray that you feel loved and valued and that the other is never true. Is there genuine, genuine cross-cultural community happening in our church? Are those of you who are in the pews here on a Sunday morning building true friendships, true friendships Monday through Saturday with people that are different than you? And I'm not shirking my responsibility when I say this, but the only way we're going to accomplish our mission to be a church that reflects the beautiful diversity of our city is if we are all in this together. If we're all in Monday to Sunday living it out together. Let me be really honest with you. 
The pastoral vocation is hard enough in and of itself. I experienced enough guilt and fear to carry our church for the number of years we're moving forward. And I experienced a ton of pressure internally to know what I'm doing as a pastor, to lead well, to make right decisions, to love well, to counsel wisely, to believe boldly. But here I am, a white Southern male, aware at times of racism in my own heart, seeking the best I can to understand how racism is perpetrated in our city and our world. I'm praying that God does something beautiful in our city by building a church in the heart of the city that reflects the diversity of the city and the pressures, mostly internal, that I feel to do multi-ethnic right and well. And the Lord knows I'm going to mess this thing up, and I've already messed up. But I have to be the chief and lead repenter in this church. We all have to repent of ways that we're going to hurt and, and ways that we're harboring hurt. And we've got to trust Jesus to use us and all our mess to be a church in the city that reflects what is to come in the heavens that we're awaiting. So I'm speaking to most of my white brothers and sisters here this morning when I say this. If we really want to see true gospel community and reconciliation, we have to shed tears over the evil in our world and the loss that we experience. But we must cry that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we have to cry and shed tears, that even we who want more, right, we want more in this church, seem to be fighting for justice and reconciliation. Yes, even we can be perpetrators of evil and injustice. I'll give it over to Justin. Excuse me. Daniel mentioned that Psalm 137 is a wartime psalm. He mentioned that in order to enter into this wartime psalm, we start with tears. I want to suggest to you now, though, that we don't stay there, right? We don't stay crying in, in tears, but those tears actually lead us to periods of lament, which is a form of protest and calls for justice. Now, I have to be honest, Psalm 137 is one of my favorite psalms. Um, it just is, but to prepare a sermon about Psalm uh, 137 was a very emotionally trying and, and draining experience. It caused me to remember uh, a lot of things that I had tried to suppress in my life, and we'll get into some of those uh, in a minute. But it also caused me to ask a number of questions that I fear will never be answered. For example, Daniel talked about the need to cultivate cross-cultural friendships. When I'm having bad days and preparing this psalm, I had a lot of bad days, I often wonder what the point of that is, right? How does having cross-cultural friendship really address systematic injustice in this world? Is it simply a means of alleviating guilt? A recent article that I read suggested that it would take over 200 years, so that's my lifetime, my kids, probably their kids, to see white families wealth and black family wealth gap uh, disappear. 228 years, I think, was the exact number. Last Sunday, a young black man was shot and killed in Raleigh from a guy who, who says he was trying to secure his home and his neighborhood from hoodlums. To be honest, I don't like talking about race. Um, I think I often suffer from what I term race fatigue. I'm tired. 
I often wonder if it wouldn't be easier and in some ways safer uh, for myself and my family to simply find a historic black church to go back to where I don't have to deal with issues of waiting for other people to understand uh, this reality, where I don't have to worry about my children growing up not understanding the reality that they're in. For example, when I was in college, I had a roommate, um, a white roommate. We, We met through playing football. We went my freshman year. We went on an overnight uh, football trip, and we were paired together by last name and by position. So I was an offensive lineman. He was a tight end, right? Same difference. Uh, <laughs> we were paired together, and it, and it worked, right? We had, we had a great night. We talked football. We talked sports. We talked all about a whole bunch of stuff, and our friendship continued. It continued um, long after college, and my junior year, we decided that we would room together, right? So it's an opportunity to move off campus, and we would do so together. Um, in doing that, oftentimes we would go back to his house. He lived about an hour away. His friends were becoming my friends. Uh, everything seemed good. Until one night, we went to a party. Uh, and at this party, I walked in on him and his friends, who I thought were my friends, making very racist jokes. It was hurtful, to say the least, um, and it was somewhat dangerous, right? So there's no kids in here. Well, there's few. There was alcohol involved, right? Uh, and so there's always that worry of, of things going over from there. Um, the usual way of my dealing with racist insults wasn't going to happen, as there was one of me and about 30 of other people, and so it was very unsafe. Um, and it was just a shot to the gut thinking that all these people who were my friends really harbored these, these ideas about me and, and others. When I got home the next day, I remember I called my father. It's a conversation that I know I hoped I would never have to have, and I know he hoped he would never have to have. I, remembering, I remember telling him I forgot where I was. You see, for the majority of my life, I've lived in a majority culture context, um, so that living in white space is not new, right? From kindergarten through now. And I had experienced issues of racism before, but this time I allowed myself to forget, right? I, I thought I found a home, a place where I could leave that all behind. My father, being very understanding in this moment, um, reminded me, saying, son, never forget. And he told me a story of how he forgot one time, a young boy in the South, where it almost cost him his life for doing nothing more than sitting in a movie theater, finding out later how many people wanted to kill him because he didn't sit in the balcony, but he had the nerve to sit up front. For that brief moment, our lives intersected, right? Time and space disappeared, and we were living the same reality. While waiting through yet another disappointing situation, I I remember going back to a place where I often went for solace, and it's the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, Really helped. He stated in his work, The Souls of Black Folks, that the Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, the sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, 
of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his twoness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. While that statement was written over 100 years ago, it still rings true today. What Du Bois was talking about was a sense in which even being at home, right, African Americans being home, having no other home to go to, that we are still in exile. We are home, but we're not home. The psalmist asked in verses 4 through 6, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, he will never forget where he is or where he came from. The truth is he cannot sing the Lord's song in exile. He is singing a new song, a song of lament and protest. He would rather forget his entire vocation than to forget Jerusalem. After all, Jerusalem was home. It was a place where God had established uh, for the children of Israel to live. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, after 40 years of wandering in the promised land and wars and whatnot, this was their home. This was the place of God's temple where he had chosen his presence on earth to be with his people. And now here he finds himself sitting by a river being mocked. Everything was lost for him. And in the midst of seeming to lose everything, he would not forget. We are in the Hentai Heritage Center. I always use this building as a point of reference, one, because I like it, and then two, because it reminds me of, of my childhood. Um, you see, the church building that we're in now was once an AME church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And when this church was founded in the late 1700s, they chose the name African uh, for two reasons. One, it was to distinguish itself from the Methodist Episcopal Church, which existed in America at that time, um, which they were leaving and forming a new church body out of due to racism, right? So they would come to church and they would have to sit in the balcony. They would come to communion as we're going to do later, but they had to wait to the end. Um, so there was a disconnect between the Christian message and the way they were experiencing it at this place. So they decided to leave. The second reason they chose the name African, I think, is a form of protest. It was a way for them to understand that they weren't who the world thought they were. They were more than property, but they were people. They were remembering that they were not defined by those who hated them. They took the name African to remember where their forefathers and mothers had come from. For the founders of the AME Church and for the psalmist, to remember is an act of protest. There's nothing worse than forgetting. Um, if you want some further examples of this, I suggest you read the book of Daniel uh, and the Bible and the book of Esther. Uh, talk powerfully about this as well. Oftentimes, protest leads to calls for justice. The psalmist states in verses 7 through 9, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of De Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now, I hope when you heard these words sung earlier 
that I, I hope there was some discomfort and that you were disturbed when, the, when, when those words were sung. I hope that the idea of someone being blessed who takes children and bashes them against the rock is something that does not sit well with us. After all, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He doesn't say, blessed are those who, you get it. These words don't seem to match everything we hear week after week. The psalmist has seen children killed. He has seen his home destroyed. He wants God to act. He wants God to act in such a way that justice will be accomplished. Again, this is not, I don't think this is the way that the majority of us want to think about justice or how it will be accomplished. It just doesn't seem to fit our narrative. After all, again, we read the words of Jesus who tells us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. It just doesn't seem to fit. I'd like to suggest that maybe our view of justice in the midst of terrible events is just too small. Sometimes I think we think that somehow God's mercy overshadows his justice, as if those two attributes are at war, right? That to be merciful and to be just are somehow opposed to each other. But this isn't the case. Evil is real, pain is real, and the desire for justice, for everything wrong to be set right is real. Justice must be served. This is what the cross event, the crucifixion of Christ, is at least in part about. God has not forgotten that his people have been wronged. He has not forgotten that evil exists. He has never lost sight of the pain of his people. But he laid all of that evil, pain, and sadness caused by sin onto his dear son. The cross was a violent event. It was a horrific event. God the Father pouring out his wrath for all kinds of sins onto Jesus. You see, the cross is the place where in the words of Psalm 85, justice and peace embrace. Our forgiveness from sin was not free. It was freely granted to us, but it wasn't free, right? It cost Jesus everything. And this is why we can say, blessed are those who persecute us. Why we can forgive our enemies. Because the triune God has promised that all the wrongs that have been done to us will be paid for. There isn't one sin that goes unaccounted for. It's because of this fact. The fact that evil was defeated on that day, that even on my worst days, I can remain part of Christ Central. It's because of that fact that even though, as Daniel mentioned, mistakes will happen, that Christ Central has a place and can remain here as well. We who have been saved know what it means to be forgiven. We know how ugly our sin is and how gracious God has been. For us, the world has been turned upside down. When the world says revenge, we say forgive, confident that God will ensure that justice is done. We find our strength in weakness. Even if the questions that I have now, even if the hope that I have now to see justice done is never seen in my lifetime or the lifetime of my children or even their children, I'm still confident that Jesus' words are sure. In the end, Jesus will wipe away every single tear from our eye. Justice will roll down like a mighty stream, 
and everything wrong will be set right. Through Christ, we become part of a different world, a world in which everyone who has placed their faith in his finished work will have a different home. We are no longer in, in exile from the presence of God. Daniel, take us home. Thanks, brother. Church, we are not home. First Peter tells us we're exiles living in a, in a strange land and that one day, someday, he'll make all things right. The new heavens and the new earth that Revelation 21 talks about, that is our home, and Jesus is leading us home. That's where we're headed. I lived in China for two years and six summers as a missionary, and the, the first few months that we lived there, we were in awe of a new place. And the people who trained us as missionaries told us that we would experience what they called a honeymoon phase for living in a, in a new country and where everything's exciting, but it'll wear off within a few months. And it did. We went over in August. By November, we were depressed. We were, we were longing to come back home. And we'd sit around as a team and we'd ask questions like, what'll be the first thing you eat when you get back to the States? What's the first thing you'll do when you get back to the States? I want to eat Chick-fil-A. I want barbecue. I want to sleep on a soft bed. I can't wait till I can just speak English freely or go to a movie theater and watch a movie. We've all experienced a longing for home. I just want to go home. Church, we're headed home. We are journeying as exiles in a world filled with evil, but we are headed to Zion because of what Christ has done on our behalf, God's presence eternally, a love for one another, a multi-ethnic family united around a Savior, a home of peace and joy and love. I can't wait to get home. Let's travel together, and may God give us taste now as a church of what we will experience in full one day. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us Lord Jesus, help us individually, help us as a church to see the evil that is in our world. Lord, even as Justin and I prayed earlier, and I prayed that what happens here every Sunday is a pushing against darkness. Lord, would you push back the evil one? Would you right all that is wrong? And would we see Jesus, the one who does bring mercy and justice together? And would we rejoice and would we be a people that fight Lord Jesus, with tears, with lament, with protest, would we look to you and would you do something in us for your glory that's different than what Durham and this world could ever experience? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.